right. Welcome. I had many people ask me, since I'm learning guitar, is this actually me playing? And like, no. Actually, nobody asks me that. There's no confusion where I am right now. But thank you, Jeremy, for the, for the walk-up. I love, I love that. So, hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here out there online. Wherever you are, so glad that you're joining us here this morning. I have got a message that I believe the Lord gave me some insight to. Uh, it's, about a, uh, it's about a scene that many of us have seen in Scripture before. We've, we've read it, we've heard it, maybe even heard a teaching on it. But I think there's so much more depth than we often hear. And I hope to be able to bring some of that depth to you today. So we're in, the, in this series, the Gospel of Mark. It's called Jesus, the Servant Messiah. We called it that on purpose because the Gospel of Mark is very straightforward in here are the things that Jesus did. Here are the miracles that he traveled around uh, doing and performing in the Galilee region and throughout his ministry. And all of the Gospels have a little bit of a different emphasis on what they are trying to, to get across about the nature of Jesus Christ. And in Mark, it's just Jesus is a servant, Jesus is a servant Messiah. And the idea is that all the miracles that Jesus performed throughout the Galilee as he traveled around were not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to the source of that power, which is his Father in heaven that flows through him and through the Holy Spirit. And then ultimately, when we receive the Holy Spirit, it flows through us. And so Mark doesn't spend an awful lot of time going into all kinds of details and background of all the miracles. It's like, here, Jesus healed this man. Now moving on. Jesus did this. Now here, Jesus threw out demons. Moving on. And it's just from one to another. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, Mark uses the word immediately more than all the other Gospels put together just to illustrate. He went from one to the other to the other in just rapid-fire succession. So sometimes... We need to slow down just a second and look a little bit more at some of, the, uh, some of the bigger issues, some of the bigger things that are surrounding these things that we see. So we're going to get into it right now. Last week, when we uh, saw what Jesus and his disciples were doing traveling around, the last couple of last scriptures from last week, Mark 140, and a man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling down and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Remember that teaching when, when Jesus said, of course, of course I'm willing, be healed. But then what does he do? He tells the man that you need to now go see the priest, and you now need to go do the things that your culture dictates, that the law that you are still under as a Jew dictates that you do. And so there was a, remember that long list of things that Jesus, that Jesus told this man he had to go do? different sacrifice and different things that the high priest had to do and all these just to declare him clean. Jesus did it with a word. Your sins are forgiven. You are clean. Right there. Done deal. But there were still in that culture a whole bunch of then procedures that he had to go through. And the point was how often do we take that declaration of Jesus, that atonement that Jesus did on the cross for us, everything that he gave us, and we say, okay, that's great. I received that. Now tell me what I have to do to live this out. What's the procedure now in order to make that a reality in my life? And the fact is, through Jesus, that reality happens the minute he speaks it into word. And so we see that. That's where we were last week. And my iPad just decided I am done for today. Okay. Then 
The result of that after he does this, Mark 145, but he went out, this is after Jesus telling him, like, let's don't spread the word. But as any of us who have been on earth for more than a day or two know that as soon as you tell somebody, don't tell anybody, there's this thing, we just have to go tell people. And it's no different. Mark 145, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Luke 5, if you read the same account in Luke 5, he he says Jesus would often slip away into unpopulated areas, slip away out into the wilderness to just kind of recharge and refresh after each one of these times. It it took a lot out of him. Remember, he he is all God, but he is also human. And so he experiences the very same things that we do. And so after doing these things, he would be, he would need a recharge. And so he would slip out into the wilderness to do that. And we see that. So that's where he was essentially at the end of where we read last week. Now we're entering chapter 2. So we're beginning chapter 2. And chapter 2 starts right out with Jesus then re-engaging with his ministry. Mark 2.1 says, when Jesus came back to Capernaum a few days later, it was heard that he was at home. So nobody really knew except for a few close friends, his disciples, where Jesus had gone to. But now he's back and people know and word spreads quickly that Jesus is here. This is the scene. Now, I believe when it says when Jesus, it was heard that he was at home, Jesus' home really is in Nazareth. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking to Capernaum. So it really boils it down to it's either Peter and Andrew's home or it's James and John's home, two sets of brothers who live together under the same roof. Now, we don't know that. In the opening parts of chapter 1, we know that it was at Peter's home, Peter and Andrew's home. I'm assuming that that's where he is also, but it doesn't change our theology, whichever one that you choose to think it's at. But I want to show you a picture. Now, in, in those times, here's a picture of kind of what... Peter's home would have looked like. Now, this we do know that this is pretty accurate, although not an actual photo. Um, it's pretty accurate because the foundations, remember I showed you in one of the earlier weeks, the foundations of Peter home, Peter's home is actually still there. You can still go up and see it. And so we know that the layout, the, the floor plan, if you will, of Peter's home was very typical of the day, and there were all kinds of homes like that. So this is kind of what it looked like. So this right here, this right here, this area, this is, is Peter and Andrew's home. And again, very, very typical. You had a, a courtyard area, which had a wall. Some, some were high, some were low. But the whole idea was to keep your donkey and to keep your sheep and to keep your chickens from running away. They would be kept inside there. And then there would be a gate leading into the courtyard. And then an even probably smaller gate because donkeys and goats had to go through your outer gate, even smaller one that entered into the home itself. Didn't have a lot of windows, didn't have a lot of other exterior openings, but one or two. But here's one trait that they always had in common. They always had either a staircase or a ladder that went up to the top of the house. The roof was very much used, and it wasn't, they didn't do a lot of sunbathing in those times. They lived in the desert. It was hot. They probably weren't spreading out a towel and catching some rays. But what they did do is, like you see down here in the corner, um, spread out fish to dry, 
that you would spread out your clothes to dry. I think it was kind of a utility area, right? So, but every home had one. Very, very common. So that's just kind of an image of what it would have looked like. So you can get your mind around what we're about to see happens in this scripture. So keep it in mind that little courtyard area, Mark 2.2, 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer space, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So again, if you think about that, the courtyard was probably packed full. Inside the house was probably packed full so that people were trying to peek inside the door and trying to get a glimpse of Jesus and their teaching. And we're not sure exactly what he was teaching, but he was teaching in there. Now, the same account in Luke talks about this. Luke chapter 5, again, kind of talks about the same thing. Now, this is a great example of what we mean when we talk about synoptic gospels. You ever heard that term, the synoptic gospels? So there's four gospels, right? Three of which are considered the synoptics, which means they talk about the same things from kind of the same or similar points of view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptics. This is a great example of how a different point of view can translate into Scripture. And it's not an error. It's not a contradiction. What it is is very much just a realization. Like, look, different people experience the same event from different viewpoints. In this case, think about this. Now, Luke, Luke took eyewitness accounts. So he was very, very careful to talk to people. Even if he personally wasn't there, he talked to people who were there and really documented their accounts. So in many ways, he's got kind of a wider range of, of vision than you would if you were just one person writing down what you saw. So they differ a little bit. This account, this very same account, now again, Mark 2.2 2 says, And many were gathered together, so there was no longer space, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Pretty straightforward. Luke then, Luke 5.17 says, One day he, Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Same vision of the same scene. Now think about this. This was Peter's home. So Peter, who dictated this, most of this, to Mark. So when Mark writes his gospel, he's kind of Mark, he's writing down what Peter told him that was happening and what he saw. Peter was the homeowner. So Peter very much had a little different vision of what was going on here. Whereas Luke has a bigger vision. Peter may not have even been aware at the time that there were Pharisees and people hanging outside. Luke sees that. Not only does he or his witnesses see that they're hanging out outside, but you can feel this tangible spirit, this, this healing presence that's on this, and it's just drawing people in. So that's where we are in this scene right here. Then Mark 2, 3. And some people came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. Interesting, again, in how Mark just is really just like, man, a few words. Some people. We don't know who the some people were. We don't know an awful lot about them. We don't hear much about them before. We don't hear much about them after this event. But we do know that the lives of these men will never be the same because they're about to experience something. Some people came bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. Mark 2, 4 then. 
And when they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, again, picture that courtyard and people from all over just trying to press in to hear Jesus who's inside. When they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. Now, that's an incredibly sanitized version of what this scene must have looked like. You ever think about that very much? They removed the roof above him, okay? It didn't have a trap door, okay? You see that. It was, it was what it would have been is a bunch of logs and then branches on top of the logs and then a mixture of mud and leaves and grass and things packed up on top of that to create this roof, right? So they would have had to, and on top of that, sunbaked for who knows how many years. It was hard and solid. You could walk on it. You could put things up on it. It was, it was very hard, and, and they were unable to get to him. They removed the roof. What does this look like? Can you imagine being in the room down below with Jesus, listening to him teach, wrapped with attention like, oh, this is, this is amazing what he is teaching. What is that noise on the roof? What is happening up there? As they're up there chipping away, I don't know if they walked through the courtyard. Now, they didn't come here planning to access through the roof, so they didn't bring their great selection of tools. They probably brought rocks and sticks and who knows, whatever they could find in the courtyard. And they're literally bashing their way through this roof. It says digging. They would have had to chip through the hardened dirt and then bust through the sticks and the rocks. There are a couple scenes in, in, from different movies. I'll show you one later that show it as kind of a planned opening that they're just accessing. It wasn't probably really like that. Not many roofs had that sort of an access hatch. So imagine that. So it wasn't just, okay, all of a sudden there's an opening and the people down below are like, oh, hello, how'd you get up there? There's crud falling down on them, sticks and dirt and everything, not to mention the, the banging and the crashing noises as they hammer away at the roof trying to get him in there. It wouldn't have taken two minutes. It was a process to dig through there, especially without any kind of tools meant for the purpose. And Jesus is down below trying to teach, and everybody like, will somebody go up there and stop whatever's happening up on the roof? This is probably the mindset of the people who are down below. So again, we don't know much about the man, the paralyzed man, or the people who came, the friends who came. Um, we do know a little bit if we look at the words themselves that kind of shine a little bit of light on this. When it says they, they let down the pallet, my translation uses the word pallet. Some say bed, some say mat, different word that the, the man would have been laying on. It all translates into the same Greek word, which is krabatos. The Greek word krabatos refers to, and it's actually even still in modern use, uh, refers to a, a, a portable bed, a camp bed, something that you could fold up and take with you. Now we think, okay, it's a camping bed. I have one of those. It's, it's aluminum and it folds up and it's got a mattress and all this. It wasn't like that. This was more the kind of thing that a homeless person or a poor person would have. And it literally was just a shade better than laying on the ground. But it was made so that they could throw it over their shoulders or take it wherever they found themselves that day and just lay down on it. A sleeping bag probably at best, but not much more than that. So we do have some insight that this man was probably very poor, quite possibly homeless, couldn't 
Couldn't hold down much of a job being paralyzed. So very possible. But what he did have was friends. He had friends that were rich and strong in faith. At least at this moment, they certainly were. And they weren't about to take no for an answer. They get to this place. They bring their friend. They have been prompted, I believe, by the Lord to bring their friend to this place. And the first thing they do is see this huge crowd. What would many people do? Go, uh, well, we better come back another day. I, it's too crowded. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll catch Jesus when he's by himself and, and we'll try it again. Or if they were able to pack through the gate and get into the inner courtyard, oh, man, now we'll never get in because, look, there's all these people and they're all just trying to peek in this little opening. We're never going to get in there. The friends were not going to take no for an answer. So here's what they do. They bust that hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down. Now, again, they didn't come with ropes and pulleys and all kinds of apparatus like, if this doesn't work, we're going to pull him back up, and we'll try again. They're like, this was one way. This was like all or nothing. We've busted the hole in the roof already. This isn't our house, so we're probably already in trouble for that. But we're going to lower Jesus down, or we're going to lower our friend down to Jesus, literally drop our friend in Jesus' lap, and we know that he's going to walk out of there. We don't have to worry about plan B. What are we going to do if it doesn't work? They knew. They had faith. And here's how we know they had faith. Mark 2, 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Here's a cool thing about that. That word faith, we've talked about this before, but it bears bringing up again. That word faith is a Greek word, and it's pistis. And the word pistis in those times especially, the word pistis meant not what we would think of as the word faith. It was a guarantee. It was a warranty that something was true and correct and was right. So in other words, what you would do, let's say you were, you were, trading, a, a, uh, you were trading a bull for a couple of oxen. You would give the person that was, that was accepting the bull, you would give them a pistis. You would give them a warranty or a guarantee that, yes, this bull is fertile and good for breeding. That's what you buy a bull for. And that's my guarantee to you, that pistis. So that's how that word meant. It wasn't a, a curiosity. It wasn't a roll in the dice. It wasn't even confidence. It was a, I know for a fact that this is going to happen. And that's the kind of faith. Jesus sees that in, this men, in these men, this tangible faith, this tangible faith that was more than just a, let's see what happens. What else do we have to lose? It wasn't that. These men are like, this is going to happen. If we can only get him into the presence of Jesus Christ, if we can only get him there, this is going to happen for our friend. And so they would stop at nothing, no roof, no crowds, no barriers, no propriety of digging a hole in someone else's house. None of that's going to cause them to give up on their friend, no obstacle. See, they had not seen Jesus in the flesh. We don't think so. They may have. But they had this faith, They had this rock-solid, unshakable faith. And what do we know about faith? You can't conjure it up. You can't decide, I'm really going to try to have faith today. Faith is a gift from God. That's the only way we get faith. And our choice then is, are we going to walk in that faith that God gave us, or are we going to add all kinds of questioning and reason and logic and other things into it? 
Because faith is an assuredness of something that we can't see and we can't grab and we can't conjure up. So what we do know, when Jesus says, seeing their faith, those men had been prompted in their hearts. And what they were doing is responding in a tangible way to that faith that was given to them. That call, bring your friend before Jesus and he will be made well. It's that kind of faith in action that Jesus actually sees this. And his response, son, your sins are forgiven. How, how perfectly straightforward and, and matter of fact. We, and I say we, I'm saying me. If we were going to pray for healing or pray for deliverance, how many of us would want to set the tone? Okay, first of all, if you're back in that place, I can't, there's a hole in the ceiling. There's probably still dust and twigs falling down. This isn't, and look at all these people. Here's what we're going to do. You two, go get some candles and set me out a circle, and we'll all get in the circle of candles. You, get some anointing oil. You, get a better mat. He can't be laying on this mat. Yeah, give him a chair. Get him something. And then I need everybody to be quiet. And then we'll begin the healing process. Does Jesus do any of that? He's like, no. Son, your sins are forgiven. End of story. It's done with a declaration, with his word. Of course, anytime something good like that happens, there's always somebody around that wants to rain on your parade. Am I right? Somebody always wants to sow doubt, like, no, that can't have happened, or you did it wrong. You did it wrong. When somebody who is paralyzed is able to walk away, and your response is, well, you did it wrong. We should check our hearts. We see that. Today, today that person lying to us and telling us we did it wrong or we shouldn't have done it like that or it's not the right time or the right place is Satan. Back in those days, in this story, it was the Pharisees. Pharisees were present. And even though they saw it happen, they started to have a problem with it almost immediately. And here's what we see, Mark 2, 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking it over in their hearts. Scribes was sort of a catch-all phrase for um, learned men. In this case, it included some Pharisees. It may have included some actual scribes who really, the job description was the keeper of the word. So their job may have been literally just to protect the scrolls that they had and then to transpose them whenever necessary to, to transcribe them onto a fresh papyrus as they wore out. That was a scribe's job, but they knew the word very well and they studied it. So this was a combination of maybe some of them maybe a, a lawyer, a teacher, but we do know that there were Pharisees present and they started immediately after seeing Jesus say this, you can just hear them starting to chatter back and forth. Jesus sensing this, so Mark 2, 7, here's what they're saying to themselves. Why does this man speak that way? Remember, that way was going back to 2, 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's straightforward. And they're going, why does he say that? Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? They knew the law very, very well. They knew scriptures very well, and they're not wrong. Who can forgive sins except God alone? So they're reconciling what they know about what scripture says with what he, this guy just said, but we saw it 
we're seeing it happen right now. So they're starting to, to think about this. And again, they're very well, very well versed in Scripture. Going all the way back, like one, for instance, and there's tons of them. Psalm 25, 18. I think we have that. Look at my misery and my trouble and forgive my sins. That's David crying out to God. Forgive my sins. There's no other instance where anyone else forgives sins but God. So then moving on, we see Jesus in the middle of of healing this man, forgiving his sins, and he's sensing that this conversation is going on. Mark 2.8, immediately Jesus, there's that word immediately again that Mark loves so much, aware in his spirit that they were thinking that way within themselves, said to them, why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? So I want to clarify something right here. When it says aware in his spirit, when we receive Christ, we also receive the Holy Spirit, and we receive gifts like discernment, like prophecy, like healing. We receive all kinds of gifts. This isn't one of those instances. This is not a gift of discernment. Jesus can literally tell what they're saying and knows what they're saying. This is divine omniscience only. So we don't, when we receive the Holy Spirit, there isn't such a thing as the gift of mind reading. Only God has that. Only God has that. So we don't get that. As many people as might want to say, I have the gift of reading minds, you don't. 1 Corinthians 2.11 tells us, For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person that is in him? Also the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. It's just simply saying that the Holy Spirit will help you understand your own thoughts, but no one gets to know anyone else's thoughts. Only God. Then Mark 2.9, going on. You can see the challenge here. <clears throat> They're saying, okay, you're telling this man he's forgiven. That's Only God can say that. You're blaspheming by saying that. So Jesus responds back to him, and he says this. Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, go, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. He's saying, look, anybody, any schmo could come up and say your sins are forgiven. Any of us could say that. Your sins are forgiven. doesn't make it so. And so he's saying, okay, you heard me say that. You just wait. You watch how this power plays out in real life. Because they haven't seen it yet. They've just heard what he's said. I know this, we see so many times, sin can be pardoned, but the sickness not healed. Or we can say the sickness healed and the sin not be pardoned. We can see it play out in many different ways. But this sickness, this paralyzed, whatever affliction he had that they're calling paralyzed, it was healed as a testament to the power of God. It was done for that reason. How do I know that? Because Jesus says so. Next verse, Mark 2.10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, okay, wait now, that's dot, 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 wait for it. The Gospels record, by the way, 88 plus times where Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man. There's only a few times where you see anybody else refer to Christ as the Son of Man. And that title has been studied extensively. All kinds of theologians look at that title. It's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. And it goes back 
<coughs> goes back even farther, but if we go back as far as, say, Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel 7.13, Daniel gives in his prophetic vision, gives the title Son of Man to the Messiah that's to come. So that title, Son of Man, does refer to, to deity, but we also see in Ezekiel and other places where it's given to a man. It's, it's Jesus' way of intentionally lowering his status from that of Messiah, Son of God, to I'm one of you. Son of Man really goes all the way back to referring to I am, I am a son, I'm a descendant of Adam. We're all men. That's kind of what it means at its core, and that's the way Jesus is doing this. It's the epitome of humility. Jesus is not claiming anything higher than just a human status right here. So now, now we get back to it. He said to the paralyzed man, dot, 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 in verse 10, verse 11, Mark 2, 11, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. So that's all there is to it. Again, no candles, no incense, no perfect scenario. On the one hand, in verse 9, in, in verse, wherever it is, I just lost it. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's that simple. Then when it comes to healing, pick up your pallet and go home. It's that simple. We complicate it so much by putting all kinds of things around it. Get up, pick up your pallet, go home. No fanfare, no let's see if it works. There's no drum roll, like let's see if this really works. He said, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Very straightforward. And the result, Mark 2.12, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, the crowd amazed, the man amazed. Can you imagine the life-changing event that it would have been for that man? That was for the one, miraculous for the one. But what about for all the people crowded around witnessing this happening? What about for the guys who had carried this man and who had in faith carved out a hole in the roof of this house, lowered him down knowing we don't have any way to get him back up. There's no plan B. It's going to happen right there. Can you imagine what that did to their faith? Like we were burdened to do this. We brought it with expectancy. We brought it with faith in our hearts that we would give this man, we would present him to Jesus, and Jesus would, would heal him. And then to see it happen, to see him just walk out, how amazing that would have been. But there were some in the crowd who would very shortly accuse Jesus of heresy or worse. Not everybody was happy about seeing that, even though they saw it in their minds. Church, that's it for the scripture for this time. But I want to share with you what the Lord showed me. Paralysis. This man, it says paralysis. And the Lord showed me this when I was studying out, okay, it says paralysis. Some translations say palsy. There's different translations. But I started going down this rabbit trail. Anybody but me go down rabbit trails when you're trying to study the Bible? I do all the time. Some of them are fruitful, some of them are not. 
They're all interesting, though. And I was going down this one trying to figure out what kind of paralysis, what disease might this man have had? What Was it palsy? Was it paralysis? Was it from birth? When is, uh, what all happened? And here's what the Lord spoke to me very clearly. Look, paralysis is not just a medical condition. Paralysis can be anything that stops you from walking yourself into the presence of the Lord. Anything. It can be a sense of just being overwhelmed. How many times do we know the people who need Jesus the most, like, I'm just, I'm so tired. I'm just overwhelmed with, I've just been getting beat down by the devil. I've been getting beat down by the world, and I'm just so tired, and I know being in the presence of the Lord is what's going to heal me, but I just don't know. Maybe, maybe on Tuesday when my schedule is not so busy. What if you say, I want to be in the presence of the Lord. I want to accept his healing. I want to put myself right in his face. But I'm a little embarrassed to do it in front of all these people. Do you think the paralyzed man being lowered down through the ceiling said, wait a minute, all these people are watching. Paralysis can come in many different ways, but the result is the same. We need a friend or a group of friends to grab you by the hand and say, no, we're going to Jesus. You may not have the energy. You may not feel like you should do it now, but you're doing it now. Drag that person, kicking and screaming or whatever it takes, into the presence of the Lord because that's where healing happens, and that's what a good friend does. These friends were good friends. There's nothing in here that says the man was full of faith or any particular person. It just says they. So we don't know if the paralytic man was was expecting this or if they just said... We don't care what you think. We're taking you there. I think they all had an assurance that Jesus would do this. But the point is the same. How many of us know a friend, or maybe it's you, who know that being in the presence of the Lord, going to him with all your baggage and all the things in your world that need to be healed, and just saying, I need you, Jesus, and I need you to do this. How many of us say, I don't want to do it in front of these people. I'll do it when I'm not so busy. I'll do it when things line up correctly. I'll do it when I don't have so many things on my plate. We need to be that friend who will say, come with me. Let's go together into the presence of the Lord because he can do it. That's what we need. I want to take a minute and show you guys a clip. We are going through, you may have heard Pastor Gabe talk about the Chosen series that's out there. It's a, it's a series of of uh, TV shows, and it is absolutely amazing. Now, I want to tell you right up front, not 100% of it is biblical. In other words, being found, documented in the Bible. Then they did this, then they did this. They fill in a lot of gaps in the things that we know in Scripture with, with suppositions and historical, um, probably it looked like this, that sort of thing. So we don't know. Sometimes it identifies people in places that are maybe not. Nothing in the movie goes against Scripture. What it does do is this series captures the emotion of what's happening. And I don't think I can capture the emotion of the picture of what's going on here very well with words, but this, word, this movie does a beautiful job. So I've captured a five-minute sec- five clip from the movie The Chosen. It is available free, by the way. Amazon and Netflix, I think, charge you to get into their service, but you can download the app and watch it for free on anything. 
It's an incredible series. But I want to show you a five-minute clip, and then we'll close out our service. I saw what you did to the leopard on the road this morning. My friend has been paralyzed since childhood. He has no hope but you. Please, do for him what you did for the leopard. That's a rope! Put it back, man! If you are willing, Rabbi, I know you can do this. your tablet at least. Harry! Is he in danger? I don't know. No, I don't think so. He's got whom in there? Yes. Can you believe we're really here for this? Yes. authority do you teach? Answer me. If you are willing, Rabbi, you know you can. Hey, I'm talking to you. By whom do you teach? Certainly not the authority of any rabbi from Nazareth. Where did you study? Your faith is beautiful. Son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. But I ask you, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? It's easy to say anything, no? But to show you, and so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, my son, rise. Pick up your bed. And go home.
easy does it. that scene, seeing the friends, seeing the, the paralyzed man just take this active faith. And I think that's what our takeaway needs to be from this section, taking an active faith, saying there, there is no plan B. Jesus is going to do this. I don't have and I'm not spending time thinking about another plan. This is my plan. And when we do that without regard to to cost or barriers or obstacles in our way, when we are literally able to go out in our lives and walk the talk, not just say the words, but live it. Take an active faith and when necessary, drag a friend along with you. That's what these guys are doing. And by doing that, they brought the very power of heaven to bear on all those things that the enemy has designed to steal, kill, and destroy the blessing of God from the people of God. I'm going to pray with me. We're going to wrap this message up. Worship team, you guys can get ready. I put a psalm, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. We're going to do it. It's on the screen, and I've personalized it, but I want us to pray this together as we close. So if you would just pray along with me. Father God, Bless the Lord, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, and do not forget any of his benefits. Who pardons all of my guilt? Who heals all of my diseases? Who redeems my life from the pit? Who crowns me with favor and compassion? Who satisfies my years with good things so that my youth is renewed? like the eagle. Amen. Amen. When we take an active faith and we walk boldly in what he has promised us, we have an assurance that it's not a let's hope so, it's a we know so. And so we're going to finish this, this service by taking communion together. And we take it a couple different ways here. If you're out there online, whatever you have, Get some elements. It could be it could be anything representing the body, anything literally representing the blood, but what's important is where our mind is. And our mind is that each time we take communion, we're not simply just remembering what Jesus did. We are saying, yes, I align myself with your mission. I accept what you have done. I accept your atonement. I accept what you have done for me and I will walk in my days remembering what you have done. Not trying to earn what you have done, but receiving what you have done and living my life like you did it for me. Walking in that power, walking in that faith. That's what we accept. That's what we do when we take communion. 
each time is reaffirming, yes, I accept it and I will live my life like it matters. So at the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers and you can serve yourself at either cross station. Or Gabe and I up front, we have wine and all you do is just dip it in the wine or in the juice. But we would be happy to serve you up here. But let's take time as the worship team plays on. Let's also pray that God would show you those situations. Maybe walk you into a situation where you can be that active faith and you can say, no, you're coming with me into the presence of the Lord and we are going to take care of this burden that you carry. We are going to heal this issue that you're dealing with. We are going to go to him for forgiveness of sins and you're leaving them behind. You're not carrying them with you anymore. Maybe if you're bold enough, pray that God would walk you into something like that today. But maybe show him, have him show you if there's a friend that needs you to grab their hand and just yank them into the presence of the Lord. Maybe you're that friend. Pray that somebody would help you do that. Let's do that now. Let's just celebrate his glory in our lives every day. Amen.